A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the White Lotus Podcast, where the lorehounds your guides to your Italian dream vacation. I'm Peppa Pig. <laughs> and I'm David, and this is our coverage of White Lotus, Season 2, Episode 2, Italian Dream. Each episode, we're going to take a closer look at different themes, references, and history relevant to the episode. Today, we'll be discussing the background of the showrunner and reference to a famous classic painting we've seen featured in Episode 1. Then we'll move into a scene-by-scene breakdown of the episode, followed by our Deadpool conversations, and then listener feedback. A reminder, you can send us your feedback to whitelotus at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those emails in the next episode. We'd love to hear your hot takes, thoughts, and predictions. If you want to talk White Lotus with us sooner, join us over at the Bald Move Discord. Link in the show notes and at baldmove.com. We have a well-moderated server and dedicated channel, set up for White Lotus. Each episode is siloed so you can join the conversation at any time without worry of spoilers. And a quick reminder about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing and want to support us directly, check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Members get ad-free versions, early access, and more. Of course, you can always get our ad-supported podcast on our Lorehounds feed by searching for us on your podcast application of choice. Lastly, we're going to be talking about some mature and sensitive topics on this show, and we're going to try and do so respectfully. Any feedback is always appreciated at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com. All right, David, why don't we head into the hotel lobby? Sounds good. John, uh, episode two, what did you think? How do you feel? I thought it was less good than episode one, but still very good. Interesting. Okay. I enjoyed a lot of the framing. I enjoyed that we're still going deeper into Greek mythology. I think that that's very cool. Yeah, we got some things to talk about around that. Right. Jennifer Coolidge continues to make me laugh out loud (laughs) at every step of the way. Even eating spaghetti just makes me laugh more than I could have imagined. And overall, I'm just having a good time. I'm excited to see how this develops. Each of the characters is growing on me and growing further away from me in different ways. And uh, I just want to see how this play plays out. Sounds good. How about you, David? Well, I, I, unlike you, I think I enjoyed this episode more than I enjoyed episode one. And I don't know if that's just a function of the plot lines are starting to develop. You know, I mean, the first episode had all that episode one 
uh, heaviness associated with it. Like, what's Mike going to do? How are they going to tease the, you know, the deaths? All of that kind of background noise and static around the the ep- the first episode of the you know of this season two show. All those expectations and everything. So uh, in this episode, I just feel like I got to know the characters a little bit more and getting to see a little bit more of how the story is going to play out. I still don't think, you know, in season one, they had those really great moody scene transitions Mm -hmm. and the Hawaiian landscape was so beautiful and it went so well with the music. I'm not feeling that vibe as strong in this episode. Um, and I, in what they do do, I just feel like it's a, it pales in comparison. In, I, I, I watched, a, I rewatched a little bit of episode one and about the, you know, the whole murder. Well, who knows if it's going to be murder or deaths or whatever, the deaths of the characters. I was watching a little bit of episode one again. And Rocco, one of the hotel staff, definitely says a few bodies. So I'm really questioning, like, are we talking about three bodies here or more? Like, that's going to be kind of wild to think about, like, the show wiping out a good, you know, third or half of the cast. (laughs) Oh, boy. Or, you know, it could be some named characters and some unnamed characters, too. Yeah. So you never know. No, we don't. But there, there is so much talk, casual talk of death in this episode. And I've pointed out a few places when we get in our scene by scene breakdown, but like people are just letting drop all these kinds of like suicide, you know, uh, spousal side, all these comments all throughout the episode. And it's really setting us up for there, you know, Mike White is really weaving death into the fabric of this story. Yeah, it got a little dark at times, didn't it? Yeah. So. <laughs> Which is on brand for White Lotus, right? I mean, season one would be like jolly one second joking around and then it would get to something really serious. So um, I'm glad that we have that same kind of tonal dichotomy in season two. Right. I'm just actually surprised at how murderous this particular plot is compared to last year. So but, you know, this should this season should stand on its own ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if it's a commentary on the links between sex and violence in culture. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly in the opening montage, um, all of the art that we're seeing is certainly sex and violence are very intertwined in all those scenes that were de- are being depicted. Right, exactly. Some Speaking of sort of con- connective tissue too, I really enjoyed the DeGrasso family walking to the Greek theater. And it really, you know, one of the things that we talked, you and I talked about when we were uh, getting ready to, to cover the show was that I certainly felt that season one was kind of like a modern day morality play. Morality plays have a very specific form um, and structure to them where this doesn't do the same thing, same thing in the same way, but I think it ultimately accomplishes a similar goal where we see certain virtues and as human aspects um, at play and by you know embodied by different characters and so I just like the fact that you know maybe it was just a thing that they did during production they're like oh hey there's a Greek theater here cool let's go check it out hey wow this works really well for the show as a kind of metaphor um, because there's a part of a scene there uh, that plays out that is very trad you know very very theatrical in some ways I, I wonder if it played a part 
in how they picked Sicily as a location. Yeah. I believe that they wanted to do something a little bit more like Arctic, a little bit more winter sport kind of oh, uh, really? resort. Okay. Uh, but then I, I think it had something to do with scheduling. I have no source for this, so I could be making this all up. But if you believe me as your podcast, Sire, I believe that they meant to do it in a winter sport resort. So I wonder if this was plan B and if they were looking around for places where they had interesting focal points to show scenes. Right. Because it certainly does play nicely because we are we are watching, you know, the the whole idea of a play within a play. And so here our players go to a theater and act out some of the um, dramatic tension that's occurring amongst them. So I just thought it was really nice little connective tissue. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the way that they that Mike White frames stories is really excellent. You could tell that he I, I heard Joanna Robinson talking about this on uh, one of the Ringer podcasts where you can see the influence of reality TV in Mike White's work. Uh-huh. And I think that he has just assembled this cast of characters in a way that will be entertaining to watch their interpersonal reactions uh, and interpersonal relationships, even if you didn't care about the main plot. Right. Right. Well, I definitely in terms of um, who I care about. I'm certainly coming to care more about Mia and Lucia more than any of the other characters. I find their relationship to be the most authentic amongst all of the, the cast of characters. And it's really fun to see just a simple relationship, two friends, you know, enjoying each other's company, having a little bit of adventure. And um, it's just so authentic the 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 vibe between them, and apparently they're they're real friends in life. They're both Italian actresses oh. who came up together. One went off. Mia, the woman who plays Mia, went off to London. Lucia stayed in Italy, and then they came back together. And actually, apparently, um, and I heard this on an interview on the Vanity Fair podcast with the actress who plays Mia. They submitted their rehearsal tape together. Huh. for these roles, and then they ended up getting them, which is very cool. But yeah, I'm really enjoying their, their just watching these two friends having an, a bit of an adventure. Yeah, I care about them. I don't care about Tanya or Greg, but I feel badly for Tanya. Right. Um, I, I, I guess most of the characters I don't feel that badly for, and I don't particularly like. I think I like Portia the most out of the guests. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's mostly just because she didn't ask to be there and she's just trying to make the most of this. Right. And I, I, I have sympathy for her. There's no real villainous characters. I mean, there's some certainly boorish behavior and some outmoded attitudes about things. But so far, no one is, I would say, villainous. Well, Dominic is getting pretty bad. But well, but it's not villainous, right? It's not, yeah, it's not yeah. villainy. It's not... It's not um, He's dealing with a sex addiction, and he's not dealing with it well, and that's led to some horrible consequences, but I wouldn't call it, I don't think it rises to the level of villainy. No, he's not a villain, but I wouldn't say he's a swell person either. One last thing, did you catch the Godfather references in this episode? I, I didn't because I haven't seen the Godfather. <laughs> I did. I think I watched it like in the background uh -huh. when I was a teenager. Okay. But I've never like sat down and watched The Godfather. 
And uh, you can write in if you want. White Lotus at thelorehounds.com. Wow. Okay. Well, there, so there um, apparently, I think Albie makes a rep or somebody, I can't, I lost it. And I couldn't find it again today. But apparently one of the other characters makes a reference to the Godfather. Hmm. And then Bert, when he's in his hotel going to sleep, he's watching the Godfather. Specifically, they show a clip of a scene of the scenes of when Mark, Michael Cor- Corleone is spending time in Sicily to avoid um, being taken out by uh, rival gang, you know, by the rival mobs. And so I don't know if that's just if, you know, if they're Mike White is just playing around or if that's something specific, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, there is already mafia movie royalty in this. Dominic, the actor, was in The Sopranos. He was in Goodfellas. So you've got some, first of all, HBO royalty, but also just mob movie history. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I, speaking of Mike White, I think you, um, for one of our little deeper dives into the aspects of the show, you prepared some information about Mike White, the showrunner. Yeah, I think his career is pretty interesting, and it's, uh, it's a little bit informative of what he's trying to do in the show, I think. So Mike White was born in Pasadena, California in 1970. Uh, He started his career both acting and writing. And his first acting credit was in 1997. He was in the the independent film Star Maps. I don't know that. If you do, Hmm. write in. I don't know it either. But as far as acting, though, his best known performance is Ned Schneebly in School of Rock alongside Jack Black. That was uh, Jack Black's roommate. Okay. He wrote that movie. I've and never seen he wrote it so that Jack Black could... You've never seen this one? <laughs> no. <laughs> this, this is manifesting, again, our generational divide. It is. Excellent movie. Excellent okay. movie. You should go watch it. Yeah, a lot of people talk highly of it. Yeah. And so he wrote that for Jack Black to be able to play all his favorite classic rock songs, <laughs> which I think is funny. Right. Yeah, it's a total... Yeah. I mean, I, looking at it from uh, afar, it seems like a Jack Black vehicle. Right. So he can just air guitar yeah. and, you know, do his head metal, you know, his headbanger, heavy metal sort of shtick. Yeah. Very fun movie. Uh, he also wrote uh, Nacho Libre for Jack Black. So he was a frequent collaborator with him. Okay. And for a while, he was doing things like that. He worked with Laura Dern at some point to create the HBO series Enlightenment, which was loosely based on his own nervous breakdown and his experience with Buddhism, healing from that. And he was also on Survivor. He was a, con- yes. and a contestant on Survivor, David and Goliath, in 2018. And he was the runner-up. Wow. I mean, that's no small feat. I'm not a big Survivor fan or watcher, but I mean, like, to come anywhere close to winning one of those things is uh, pretty significant. Yeah, so he's not only watched a lot of reality TV, he's been on a lot of reality TV. So I think that you can really see... Yeah how that's seeping into the way he approaches the White Lotus. I think he really does capture conversations well, realistic conversations. And I think that that has to be at least partly because of his experience in that gen- in that genre. Right. And being of a particular place at a particular time. I mean, he's only uh, a year younger than me, actually, um, to date myself. We'll get writing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Pasadena, California at that time and that place, that's a, that's a, a kind of a, a unique time during the California's history and, you know, pop culture in, in America. And yeah, he, he just seems to have some sort of strange insight into our, our American psychology and, and sort of prying apart 
areas of of uh, conversation and topic that can kind of feel awkward at times. It's like we're not used to like anybody rooting around in that part of our psychology and then making something out of it. What amazed me about White Lotus season one was how deeply uncomfortable it made me, Very but also how realistic it felt. Yes, absolutely. Which is why I bounced off it um, pretty hard at first before we even talked about covering it. I was like, ah, this show isn't for me. I thought it was going to be another uh, Succession-esque type show. And I was like, nah, uh, I- I'm not buying this. And then, uh, yeah, obviously you got me to, to take a look, closer look at it. And I was really surprised at the depth and nuance to the conversation that he was able to generate out of that season of television. Well, I think Mike White is really good at capturing how especially rich people mm-hmm. say the right things and facially do the right things, but they're actually big parts of the bigger problems. Right. Yeah, which we see somewhat embodied in Daphne and Cameron oh, in this yeah. episode. In yeah, season. we'll get to it. So, we'll get to yeah, it on the beach, definitely. right? Yep. And and in the first season, uh, you know, stuff about voting and, you know, all of that kind of stuff and their their social engagement. I mean, they're they're at a status level and and um, privilege that they can remain unaffected by so much that's going on in the world, sort of, you know, which is what Harper is um, always harping on uh, about like, hey, the world's a really messed up place. And it's sort of, I, I'm taking on a lot of that angst and, and um, you know, really wrestling with myself about what it means. And it's affecting me, it's affecting my sleep. And Cameron and Daphne are like, you know, oblivious to that. Yeah. I mean, it is two very different couples. And yeah, I don't, again, I don't think that Mike White has taken a side on which one is right or if either of them are right. No. And I think that's, I, I like that fact that he's just putting them out there in front of us and letting them play out and then letting us draw our own conclusions and, and see the interactions. Because as we see in this episode, we see that Cameron and Daphne have dealt with some stuff that that was difficult. Right, exactly. I think that, especially with Cameron and Daphne, Harper thinks that they're stupid, right? Like, yeah, they, absolutely. she just thinks that they're stupid. And I think that this episode showed that they're not stupid, that they are emotionally complex people. And just because somebody has a different interest than you does not mean that they are less intelligent. Right. Uh, no, uh, or, or, nor that you should condemn them uh, right. and, and judge them morally. Right. So, David, you've brought in some other lore, some more mythology for us. Yeah. So, I was rewatching episode one. I was trying to rewatch episode one uh, just before episode two dropped so I could just sort of roll right through um, the two episodes. Um, and I didn't make it all the way, but I was, as I was watching, I um, caught them doing something, them, the showrunners, Mike White, doing something. He flashed a scene of a painting that is hung up in um, Harper and Ethan's room. So in the scene um, where the four couples are in Harper and Ethan's room, yeah, they flash a still of the painting, and it's a painting of, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Tarkin and Lucretia? Lu, Lu, yeah, I think Lucretia. Yeah, yeah, Lucretia, and, I think. Yeah, Lucretia. And I looked it up. I was able to sort of snap a picture of it on my phone and then do some Google image searching. 
and figured out what the painting was. And this painting, there's a lot of variation. This painting is a, a semi-famous painting. A number of different painters have painted this, and uh, you can see different versions of it. Um, so the story, though, I think is what's important here. It's a story from early Roman history and around the time of the last king of Rome. And the, the king's son, Sextus Tarquinius, rapes Lucretia, and then who, Lucretia then commits suicide. And this painting and this story sort of forms part of a um, movement within some uh, uh, artist. Uh, I'm not an art historian, so I'm, I'm really trying to find my words here without just sounding like the Wikipedia article. But um, this painting represents and is part of a larger movement in art around women and power and um, how those aspects of domination are played out, and particularly within uh, Renaissance paintings and, and things like this. So I, I'm not qualified really to talk about that aspect of it, but what I thought it was really interesting was that this is a known painting. These are known characters, historical figures, if you will, or mythological figures. And it very much points back towards that whole thing of violence and sex and sexual violence. Um, and I thought it was something to call out so that we can kind of keep that in our minds as the story rolls forward. Because as we talked about, Mike White is really weaving a fabric with a lot of complex topics around these areas. That is a really fascinating myth, and I think it's very much in line with what we've already seen. I wonder if the different paintings in each of the rooms has something to do with each of the couples specifically, or if that's too cute for Mike White. So I was really looking for that. I thought, okay, is this, are we going to see, you know, it, more of this? Is he, is he using this as a visual language of this in the story? And I have not yet seen, other than the... Um, Testo di Moro, which we saw in episode one, we didn't see any of those in episode two at all, not even in the background, that, to my recollection. And nowhere else, at no time else, have they shown us a specific piece of art in this specific way, flashing it very directly on the screen for that brief moment so that it imprints on us, but then it moves on and we almost forget that we mm. saw it. And this was when both couples were in the room, right? So it could be... Correct, yeah. It could be about either of them or all of them. Yeah, uh, or Greg and Tanya. Uh, you know, I don't know that it's tied to the room right. or if it's just a tonal thing that he's um, injecting into the storyline. Yeah, it's really fascinating the way that he's weaving art in and out of these storylines and the way that Mike White is using classical art and sexual violence art to set the scene or set the stage or perhaps foreshadow or not. Yeah, I'd be really interested in a after the season interview with him to specifically on that uh, around art and art history and how that factored into the script writing and the production and development of the show cuz I don't I can't recall another show that has used art in this same way as almost another character in the story. Well, if he doesn't do that interview, come back here and we'll make it up. <laughs> Maybe that would be a great get, though. I tell you what. I know, right? Well, yeah, let's, I'll write to Mike White tonight, okay? <laughs> All right, sounds good. Give him a call. 
All right. uh, Are we ready to get into our scene by scene breakdown? We sure are right after this break. And we're back. David, would you like to begin our scene-by-scene breakdown? Yeah, you know, John, we're going to change up our game here a little bit, and we're going to switch to more of a character arc breakdown. Um, This particular episode was really difficult to try to do a scene-by-scene because there's so many little interstitched moments between the various characters. And I think it'll just be easier if we follow the different uh, groupings of characters as we go forward. And then we'll just sort of talk about them and and their whole. And then, you know, as they cross over, we'll mention that. Ah, you're getting the experimental Lorehounds patch. Yes. <laughs> New territory for us. All right. I'm in. All right. So let's start with the DeGrasso family plus Portia, because she joins up. Dominic wakes up in the morning, obviously, with some regrets. Yeah, he's not feeling great about himself, nor should he. I mean, he's, he's telling everyone he wants to be better. I'm going to be better for my wife. And then he's just not. So I, you know what? I don't have a ton of sympathy for him. I know he claims sex addiction. I'd like to see his paperwork for that. But I, I just, I don't feel that badly for him. Right. Well, this is, at this stage, we don't yet know that he uh, uh, has a sex addiction. We can guess that, you know, something's going on. But I I think knowing that after the fact and then remembering this scene, it's really clear that he is sort of, uh, you know, scraping bottom there where he's like engaging in this behavior that then ultimately, ultimately makes him feel worse about himself. Okay, but does he have a sex addiction or is he using that as a line to get out of responsibility? Oh, I, I... I don't have any information to say otherwise. Like, I have to take the show at face value here, I think. Well, taking the show at face value doesn't mean we need to believe the characters in what they say. No, that's true. Uh, at this point, I'm willing to uh, go along with that. I, I, I don't see anything that counters that. And, and what I do see seems to support that. So I'm going to go with it. We'll see. I mean, you know, there's a real thing that is sex addiction. And then there's people who use that real thing... Uh, when, when they don't actually have it as an excuse to cheat on their partners and do other not morally great things. Well, I think that's an interesting thing that I, I will have to sort of track Dominic. Because, I mean, if we go back to the scene where he's talking to his wife uh, while he's sitting on the bed, he is attempting to make a genuine connection with his ex-wife, who's not having it. But and nor should she. Um, but you can see that he is was trying to make an authentic effort. Well, words are easy. Talk is cheap. No, no well, no, I'm not, and I'm not saying that that what he is doing is adequate. But I could see the character, you know, the 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 portrayal of the actor in that moment seemed to be as if he was trying to make good steps, but clearly. You know, he's got some work to do before he can, you know, follow through on that. So what I'm saying is, is that I, I think Dominic is trying to grapple with it. He just doesn't have the tools or taken the actions to deal with it appropriately. I don't know. I don't I don't believe him when he apologizes to his wife because he already had okay. a standing appointment with a prostitute. All right. Right. 
I mean, okay. I, I just, I can't believe him. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. And <laughs> neither does his wife. <laughs> yeah. I'm on so. your side, Laura Dern. <laughs> All right. Next, we see uh, Portia joining Albie for breakfast after being spotted by Tanya. And I, I got to call out this line here as Tanya walks out onto the balcony. She, you know, talks about, oh, what a lovely view it is. And then she says, I wonder if anyone has ever jumped. Which it it's kind of one of those lines. If you blink, you'll miss it. Um, but again, it just is one of these another character comments about death or dying or murder. You know, so uh, I just had to point that out there. Yeah, Tanya says a lot of crazy things. Her intrusive thoughts are peeping through. Right. Yeah, I didn't know what to to make of this line, but it. I wanted to hang on to it just in case. Hmm. Is Tanya having suicidal thoughts, or is she just someone who says whatever pops into her head? I think she says whatever pops into her head, but it's not... I wouldn't put it past the writers to be giving us some sort of Chekhovian, you know, style thing, right? Yeah. Just, just laying some more groundwork for what might happen in the later episodes. She's certainly deeply emotionally wounded. Tanya, yes. Certainly. Yeah. And we learn more about that later in the episode. So Dominic and Bert join Albie and Portia, and Bert gives Dominic a hard time about the state of his marriage. Uh, they invite Portia to walk with him to the Greek theater. So here we see um, Albie and Portia hooking up a little bit more, getting to know each other, and then we're um, getting into what's going on in Dominic's marriage. Yeah. So. I, at this point, I actually wasn't sure if Bert was being authentic in his advice to Dominic. Uh-huh. Because at, at this point, we hadn't seen the later conversation where he's like, well, just be discreet about it. Right. But I kind of thought for a second that Bert was saying like, okay, yeah, I flirt, but I've never cheated on my wife. And I, you know, until she died. And so that was sort of a moment where I was like, hmm, is the... Is the generational divide more than just how they speak to women, but how they treated their wives? And did Bert actually have a leg up on Dominic with that? Right. I mean, this gets into into some a later scene where Dominic calls out his father for not being as discreet as his father thought he would, and his and Bert just says, "Oh, well, they were peccadilloes." <laughs> So I think generationally, Bert's attitude is certainly one of, you know, quote unquote, a man's got to, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do kind of, of thing. Where, you know, he's, you know, uh, dominant and supreme and, you know, unchecked, right? My behavior is unchecked because I'm a man. Yeah, I mean, Bert certainly didn't redeem himself in, in my eyes after the end of this episode. No. <laughs> So, um, later on at the theater, Bert mistakes Portia for Albie's sister, Cara, who was scheduled to come on the trip, except for the rift that developed between Dominic and his ex-wife. Bert further questions Dominic and then proceeds to give a Greek history lesson about the myth of Hades and Persephone. Bert posits that whatever Dominic did could not be as bad as what Hades had done. There was a lot here. A lot. It was packed in. So first of all, I don't think that Bert actually mistook Portia for Kara. I think that that was just a dig at Dominic. 
So this goes on your theory that he didn't really fall at the yeah. poolside uh, accidentally. I think Bert is a lot slicker than we're than he wants us to believe. Wily old Zeus, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I should talk about that, which uh-huh. is I forgot to mention this last episode, mostly because I didn't know. My wife listened to our podcast and told me this. <laughs> hey, at least we got one listener. I know, right? Thanks for listening. So on the whole. Zeus being a swan uh-huh. and assaulting Leda, she told me that actually Zeus feigned an injury as the swan to attract Leda over to him, which really plays into this whole theory that Bert is Zeus trying to attract Portia by being this poor, sweet old man. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm all in on this theory now. Yeah, I'm, I am more and more convinced. Uh, your wife should keep listening to our podcast. I hope she does, but I can't make any promises. Okay. She hears my voice enough. <laughs> what do you make of this uh, Hades and Persephone uh, story that Bert tells? And he uses it kind of as a canard, right? Am I using that word right, canard? He's like, he's setting up his son. He's poking at him earlier, saying, well, you know, what did you do? And then he drops this, you know, Greek myth story to create a really far extreme of bad behavior and says to his son, well, whatever you did, it couldn't have been that bad, right? I believe that's a story with a lot of versions, too. Whereas Uh I I think that in some versions of the story, it was a consensual relationship where Mm -hmm. Persephone wanted to be with Hades. And then, you know, the way that mythology gets twisted, you never know what's the true account. And, you know, it's all fictional. So none of it's true. Uh, But the way that he uses this to frame the culpability of his son is really the fascinating part. Yes. And then sort of simultaneously create a space from which Dominic can come back from because you didn't it wasn't that bad, was it? At the same time, goading him and guilting him into, like, dealing with the situation. Because Bert's upset that his granddaughter's not with him on this generational trip. Well, I'd be upset, too. But at the same time, she's not there, and there's no way she's going to make it before the end of the trip. So I think Bert's got to just kind of let it go for now if they want to enjoy the trip at all. Right. Well, I mean, that's... Part of the issue is that he's, he's pissed off at his son, right? right? For being sloppy, as he calls him out later. Right. It's not that he is messing around. It's that he's messing around and he has receipts. Yes. Yeah, it's not great. So I want to know the relationship between Bert and Laura Dern's character. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> Dominic certainly doesn't want his father to get involved in any way. Right. And I could probably see that uh, Laura Dern's character, I don't even know if we're going to have her back anymore. Um, Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. uh, (laughs) From the phone call. She would want anything to do with Bert. Right. I think that if she's as smart as she sounded on the phone, because she seemed to see right through Dominic, then she probably knows that Dominic learned that behavior. Yep. Yes, exactly. All right. Albie and Portia go out for dinner and discuss romance in the modern age. Albie divulges that his dad got got caught cheating on his mom and describes himself as the peacemaker in the family. 
Portia complains about wanting to just live her life. And then back at the hotel, Portia divulges more details about Tanya, and Albie asks to kiss her. Hmm. So this is the scene where a red flag just popped out of the ground uh-huh. out of nowhere for uh-huh. me. Because I'm watching the dinner scene, and all of a sudden, Albie lays out, oh, yeah, girls just don't want a nice guy. And I went, oh, 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 oh. Well, I think there's a, a central thesis of the Portia Albie storyline was laid out here because she's talking about Tinder and Bumble and being online and just wanting to live her life. At the same time, also very much um, expressing her own personal frustration uh, and lack of fulfillment in the romantic department. Um, and, you know, she makes the joke about, well, yeah, I'd date a caveman at this point. And it's sort of the whole caveman versus nice guy thing where Albie's playing the nice guy, but maybe your red flag is that Albie isn't really a nice guy. He's a, he's a caveman in nice guy clothing. Well, we all know about the nice guy trope, right? Yes. So... People are saying, you know, you have these men going around saying, you know, incels. This is the root of the incel thing is they're saying, well, I'm a nice guy, but girls want a mean guy and they're not interested unless they're unless it's a mean guy. So I'll never succeed as a nice guy when really most of the people saying those things, maybe even all of the people saying those things, although I'm sure there's some exceptions, are people who are not very nice, really, that see themselves as nice but are actually kind of jerks to women, and that's why they turn women off. And also, it's people who don't realize that you can be nice and interesting. It's just that you need to have hobbies and something to talk about to interest someone. Right. I think, there too, there's some difficulty in mixed messages, you know, how men and women are assuming that you're interested in a, in a heterosexual relationship. Um, I'm not qualified to talk about other things other than that, that, you know, how are we supposed to, we being all human beings, relate to each other given some sociological changes that we've had? So how can you be romantic and, and go with the flow in the moment when, you know, you've got to be consensual and like Albie says, you know, can I kiss you? Like he does a very modern thing, which rather than just, you know, grabbing her up and kissing her, he asks to kiss her. Yeah, that was good behavior. So that was a little bit of a redemption for me. Right. So how can you do that at the same time that you can sweep Portia off her feet? Because she just says, you know, she she says earlier on, I just want to be thrown around, you know, by somebody. And, you know, I just want to live a, a full and fulfilling life. And yet I'm, you know, working my way around social media and all these mores and folkways. And, you know, she's chafing at those structures and just wants to sort of, you know, light off the candle. I'll tell you what, Portia, get a list of can'ts and won'ts drawn up and hand them to Albie and say, these are your parameters. Do what you want. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you do that. There you go. All right. Um, Bert and Dominic are having dinner back at the hotel. Uh, Bert tells Dominic to fix whatever caused the rift in Dominic's marriage. Bert calls Dominic sloppy. Yeah, so we've talked about this a little bit first. 
before of how Bert is giving this sort of half-hearted advice to be a better man. It's sort of, can you be a facially better man? Can you put on a better public image? And I think that that goes back to a lot of the boomer and the greatest generation of there are these picture-perfect households with all everything's put together. And really, there's some deep-seated resentment and violence behind the scenes that we're not privy to because people were very private, but they weren't necessarily more moral. And in a lot of ways, they were a lot more violent towards their spouses. Right. And this idea that Bert's peccadilloes aren't really a moral transgression. Right. Because he never got caught, right? It's But if if all, if everybody in his you know, in society at that time, we're like, well, yeah, you know, men can just do that. That's just okay. When really it's not, it's doing moral harm both to the, the, pers- per- the person perpetrating it as well as the, you know, other people around and affected by that. Because it's a lot, you know, if you're lying, you're lying. And if you're doing something that's not agreed and consensual, then, you know, you're using your power and your influence in some way. Um, and Bert just has no, he's Zeus on the mountain, right? He's just like, hey, I'm just Zeus. I'm just doing my thing. Was it accepted in society or did other men excuse the behavior? Because I, I think that there's also a difference between being widely accepted, because I don't think it was publicly accepted for sure. I mean, if you, if you got caught in adultery, oh man, don't go to church that week. You're going to get yelled at, et cetera. But then, and the women sur- surely were not happy with it at home unless they had that kind of arrangement, which, I'm, uh, which I don't think was common back then, but I wasn't alive, so right in. But I think that what you're seeing is Bert comes from a culture of men excusing other men for doing deeds that they know to be wrong. Absolutely. That, and I mean, I think that's what I was, in a, you, what you just said in a very short form is what I was trying to say in a long form. <laughs> Well, that's what I'm here for, David. Sometimes you summarize me, sometimes I summarize you, and then we move on to the next scene. We do. So, uh, Lucia and Mia show up at Dominic's door. He confesses that he has a sex addiction, which he's trying to manage. Don't believe you, Dominic. And then he ultimately invites uh, Lucia and Mia in, and they party. Don't make me regret this. Oh, boy, Dominic. (laughs) You are going to regret this. And those yeah. charges are going on your credit card, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I thought that that was interesting that he, you know, to, to get all of this in operation, he had to add them to the room, which is going to show up. I mean, I don't know that it's going to be a topic for the show, but it certainly would probably show up in any divorce proceedings when they subpoena all his, uh, his you know, finances that, uh, you know, that these extra people were added to the hotel bill. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. All right. I guess we can talk more about his handling of me and Lucia when we talk about them, right? Yeah. So, well, let's jump over to, to me and Lucia's storyline. Now, they're interwoven a little bit in a couple of other things, but uh, for them, we start off with them window shopping and Lucia outside of the shop that Dominic and Daphne are shopping at. And Lucia divulges her aspirations. Lucia exposits about her plans with Dominic, and Mia confesses to throwing a drink in the face of the piano player, and a discussion about reputation ensues. That's honestly, though, she's trying to do business. I get it. 
Mm-hmm. She's trying to hustle, and she brought this woman in, and all of a sudden, there's violence in the bar. Can't have it. Now, at the same time, the guy should not have been so presumptuous, but I get what Lucia is saying. Yeah, and I think it's, um, I thought it was interesting. The question of, of reputation was interesting because in the history of that, and I think maybe next episode will, or, or coming up, I'll, I'll got a little bit of background on the Testo di Moro um, vases, uh, those bust figures that we saw in episode one. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that, it was about honor and reputation, about what happened there. Ah. And so I think... You know, seeing uh, Lucia, who's uh, uh, an empowered sex worker who has designs and aspirations for her life, um, and I, I thought it was a an interesting point counterpoint about reputation and whose reputation and what does that all mean um, in a modern age. I thought it was a very very short part of their conversation, but I thought it was a very pointed one at the same time. No, I think that's super interesting, and I think that Lucia is someone who sees herself as, well, a sex worker, somebody who is her own boss, somebody mm-hmm. who can walk into a five-star hotel for a client instead of, you know, being picked up randomly, somebody who you have to book in advance, and I think she's very protective of that image because she wants more people like Dominic and not more randos. Right. Whereas Mia, who is a romantic and has um, aspirations to be a singer is presumed to have been a sex worker and not, and she got upset that her reputation was sullied and so threw the drink at the piano player. So it's a really great little inversion there about, you know, who is being labeled what. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, their whole dynamic this episode was really interesting, especially as we see where Mia goes this episode. Right. All right. So the girls wait for Dominic outside the hotel. He takes them in and has their names added to the reservation uh, on the DeGrasso family. And then the girls go on a shopping spree in the hotel and then lounge by the pool. Don't give your credit card to him. Don't do it, Dominic. (laughs) That's a mistake. And you knew it. You knew it. You said, don't make me regret this. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think they were, you know, reasonable. I mean, they bought some clothes and they had some How much do you think those clothes cost, though? That's at a five-star hotel. In These shops are in the five-star hotel. Right. Yeah, nope. Absolutely <laughs> expensive. Uh, but, you know, hey, he, you know, it, I, I don't know. Like, that, that's on him. <laughs> that's absolutely on him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did really love this exchange between Dominic and Valentina. Yeah, it was perfect. So good. Because she knows exactly what he's doing. Yes. <laughs> and she's basically heavy-handedly implying, do not do this in my hotel. Right. And he is just calling her bluff. He's like, you're not going to call the police on me. I'm paying a lot of money to be here. Right. And he's forcing her to, you know, deal with the situation when that's the last thing she wants to do. But I love how confident he is in this because, again, mm-hmm. talking about, like, is he a sex addict or is he just somebody who's comfortable in his shady morality? Uh-huh. And I think that this shows that he's just comfortable doing what he's doing. He's not, he's not embarrassed of this. He doesn't, he's not embarrassed That's of a, a sex point. addiction. He is just like, no, get it done for me. You know, let them in. What's the big deal? Right. These are my friends. They're going to come visit. He is way too casual about this. This is not, I don't think that he has this desperate need for sex. I think that he just is filling a void in his life. All right. Well, that's, uh, I, I, I find that a compelling argument and I will 
further take your uh, your point of view under advisement here uh, and and keep that in mind because uh, that is actually pretty compelling. Like he's just so businesslike about this particular aspect. He's like, just let them in. What's the yeah. big deal? Right. So after the girls get ready for dinner, they head to the hotel bar, already tipsy from a bit of day drinking. The piano player comes in and Mia cajoles him into letting her sing a song. Lucia looks on impressed. This was a very cute scene. Mm-hmm. I love their relationship in this. I think that Mia finally got what she wanted. I don't know if it was believable that the, <laughs> that the piano player allowed her to use his piano after that whole thing. But maybe he was like, well, I did imply she was a putana and yeah. she wasn't. So maybe he just wanted to let the beef go away. And maybe he thought that she was a guest because she was there a second night in a row and not getting kicked out. Right. So I guess fine. And the song was fun. It was, I don't know if it was quite as amazing as Lucia thought it was, but maybe that's another part of it is that with her friendship, she thinks that her friend is like the most amazing singer in the world. So the actress who plays Mia is actually a folk singer herself. And that this is actually a live recorded song. Like they did not, this is not an overdub song. Oh, they wow. recorded, th- this was filmed. She sang it. They filmed it, you know, right there on the spot. Well, I'm more impressed now. Yes, absolutely. I think that adds a lot of, uh, just a nice little extra authenticity note to it. But I do love at the end when Mia's finishing, when Lucia, there's a moment when Lucia just looks over and she's so amazed by her friend. You know, she's so like, wow, this is my friend. She's a beautiful voice. She's a confident singer. And I just love that little moment of bonding between these two. She's enamored with her. She thinks yeah, that absolutely. she's the, the, the cream of the crop over here. Yeah, yeah. So, good stuff. All right, so let's switch our focus over to the foursome. This is, gets, this is like um Is that really the chunk. way you want to refer to them for the rest of the season? I, I don't, how else am I supposed to, you know, the... Not the foursome. No? <laughs> yeah, well, give me something else, because that's, that's what I got. It just sounds too sexual. <laughs> the it well, yeah I mean there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of tension going on here I mean I could okay. say the the Spillers and the Sullivans if you would like me to this stays in by the way um, oh fine this the foursome it is All the right. foursome All right so Ethan wakes up before dawn to go running and he encounters Lucia in the hall as he heads out and Harper Harper wakes up alone in contrast uh, Cameron and Daphne spoon as they wake up together. And Cameron is, suffers from dead arm. It's a tale of two couples. Yes. Uh, pretty straightforward scene. This is the one scene or, or sort of stitching of scenes with Ethan out on his run where I did feel like they were hitting the mark in terms of the moody scenery of the location. And I felt that this was the best done of that so far in season two. Well, hopefully they continue that trend in each episode. They're a little better for you. I hope so. I hope so. So at breakfast, Harper sits with uh, Cameron and Daphne and hints that she's sort of dealing with waking up alone. Cameron get a, gets upset talking to the airline about his lost luggage, and Daphne makes excuses for his temper. Quote, Cameron, incompetence makes me homicidal. Another one of these murderous lines Ooh. in the script. Yeah, so I liked Harper going, does he ever yell at you like that? Yeah. That was a great line that was very in character, like, let me make sure she's safe, which is good, you know, that's good for her. Yeah, 
checking in on people. Yeah. I mean, and I do believe Daphne when she's like, we never fight. Like, as far as we've seen this episode, this, this season, they don't fight. Yeah. And they diffuse any kind of conflict very easily. And I haven't even noticed any conflict. So we'll see. I only noticed one piece of negativity the whole episode, and that was towards the end when they're sort of calling Aubrey Plaza a pill. Right. Uh, I was just going to say that, you know, it's interesting um, that uh, Cameron's behavior, right? So they're setting some more uh, false, you know, more leads out there for us, false leads, you know, good leads, you know, we'll see. I think, I think they're playing, I think Mike White is playing with this a little bit more in this season and laying out some various trails for us to try to pick up on, but that when... Cameron gets wound up. What, da- what does Daphne say? She says she's got a, sh- a long fuse, but then when, it, when he does go off, it, it gets quite intense. So they're definitely setting up Cameron's character for some potential circumstance. When's his fuse going to light with Harper? Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's a long fuse, but it's, it's burning. Right, it's burning. exactly. Yeah, right. so it's, uh, that's a little troubling. That's, that's really it troubling. Is. Yeah. Um, I loved the awkward scene. I loved that Harper wanted to have breakfast alone and gets Read called over. She had her book. Yeah, she was ready to go. I wanted that morning. That's looked like a cozy morning. Every <laughs> now and then I'll wake up earlier than the family and I'll uh-huh. just like sit on the couch. I'll make a cup of tea and I'll read a book. And that just seemed like that morning. And I and uh, Harper, I'm with you. I uh, or I would not be with you. I'd be at the next table doing my <laughs> reading your book. Right. All right, Ethan returns from his run and prepares to have his daily release and is then interrupted by Harper. They discuss their sex life and the fact that Daphne and Cameron never fight. Ethan chides Harper and we cut to a brief scene of Cameron and Daphne shopping. Hmm. How did you feel about this scene? I was very nervous when he pulled out his laptop. Yeah. He was just too eager about it. I was shocked at the well i'll come back to my shock in just a moment but first i gotta say dang ethan like the boy is ripped like he has a him. serious physique there is no fat on that boy i didn't know that hn had fitness programs oh ouch <laughs> which it's really interesting because like this guy i think it goes to his character that he's driven like if you're going to have a body like that that's you're working on that body right you're 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 eating right you're doing all the different exercises you're not skipping leg day etc cetera, etc cetera. so i was uh it's a, i think it's an interesting clue I, I don't know if that's just they're they're trying to give us sexy bodies in this show or if that is actually something that's pointing to aspects of ethan's character yeah yeah i mean he wakes up early every day and runs it seems like um this is our first morning in the hotel right so because they just had their first night so seems like he's going to do that every day and i wonder if that's going to come into play with the plot too good point good point um in terms of my shock um it's like dude like really like you're are, are you expecting to get caught i mean it, it just seemed like a really dumb way to go about that. Well, maybe they have enough openness in their relationship where he figured, you know what? If I get caught, I get caught. Well, I mean, they were. They were very matter of fact about it. And she was yeah. like, you know, she, I, I give them that in, their, in that aspect of their relationship that they can have a, 
those kinds of awkward and difficult conversations and actually get through them without uh, having a complete relationship breakdown. Right, right. Yeah, nobody raised their voices. Nobody got too hostile. There was legitimate critique on both sides, and I think that they got through it. But it also, I think, points to, while that part of their relationship is strong, there are other parts of the relationship that are not. Right. The foursome sit for beachside drinks and discuss travel and the sorry state of European aristocracy. Harper talks about her Puerto Rican heritage and Daphne and Cameron pander. Yeah, that was a that was a great scene and a very uncomfortable scene. Uh-huh. That is White Lotus at its best. Yes. Just and also out of nowhere, Harper goes, Yeah, you can stay with my family because I think she knows they're full of shit. They're not going there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go ahead. Exactly. You stay with uh exactly. with my Theo and uh and he'll take good care of you and you will never see anybody. <laughs> As if Daphne and Cameron would ever do that and not stay at, you know, fancy villas and those kinds of things. Right, exactly. Yeah, if they go there, they're staying in like yeah, a palace. <laughs> exactly. The I did think it was interesting, speaking of palaces, that Cameron sort of uh trash talks European aristocracy here and of the fact that they don't have any cash. And so again, I think that points to this issue, like why did Cameron and Daphne invite uh Harper and um Ethan on this vacation? I still don't know why they invited them on vacation. All right, the couples lounge on the beach, and Cameron broaches the subject of Ethan and Harper's new wealth. The couples discuss philanthropy, and Cameron feels bad about being a materialistic pig. Harper goes for a swim. So here we have some more of this conversation about the tale of these two couples and about their attitudes towards wealth and finance. Yeah, and this is really the peak moment for Harper, assuming that they're dumb and they don't hear her criticisms, her mm-hmm. male criticisms. Right. And then Cameron's like, well, sorry, I'm a materialistic pig. You know, like like he he's very perceptive. You know, say what you will about his his morality and his his choice in life. But he is a smart guy. He knows when people are implying nasty things about him. And he wants Harper to know that. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, uh, as I was um, writing up the show notes, I paused during this scene after Cameron gets up to walk away. And on the actor's face, like just sort of accidentally at the moment that I froze it, there is a devilish grin on his face. Hmm. And if you watch the scene over again, there's a lot of emotions playing out on his face. And so it's easy to miss. And I, I just accidentally caught that moment. And there is a degree of Cameron. There's a part of Cameron who knows exactly what he's doing, just like he was doing in the bathroom by exposing himself. Right. He is playing some games here. Yeah. Although I will say Harper is the one in the wrong here. I, I mean, you know, you can say different things about how... How much good Daphne and Cameron are doing by this like detached philanthropy. But at the same time, it's not Harper's place to basically be like, well, you suck. Right. (laughs) Yeah. uh, (laughs) I just thought that the whole construct of 
drinking wine, scrolling on your phone, and seeing distressing images leads you to this drunken binge of philanthropic <laughs> spending. I thought that was a very, <laughs> very nice Mike White-ism kind of thing. I loved it. I loved yeah. every minute of it. It was good. All right. In the water, Cameron surprises Harper and then says he feels like he keeps saying the wrong thing, and that's it, that it's important to him that Harper like him. This was a weird scene. It was a, made me really uncomfortable. Yeah. On the one hand, he's kind of being the bigger person and saying, I'm saying the wrong things, when really, honestly, Harper has been saying the wrong things most of the time. The only mm-hmm. thing that I could think of that would piss Harper off that rightfully so is when he's like, oh, all these bogus lawsuits. And that's in episode right. one. But other than that, I feel like saying the wrong thing, it's mostly been Harper making digs at him. Right, right. Now, at the same time, we still have this debatably intentional exposure from last mm-hmm. episode. Right. But that was actually, for a second, it seemed like he was being the bigger person. But the way he approached her was super creepy. You know, getting her under the water, isolating her. Yeah, yeah. He's doing it in that jocular fashion. You know, he's physically imposing. He's using his physicality to um, dominate the situation, but not directly scaring you. And he's using his winning smile and his charm. But at the same time, he's bringing his physicalness into that conversation. And so by grabbing her foot like that, I mean, that's just a a very jockey thing to do. Yeah, I didn't love that. So, yeah. And and again... This whole I want you to like me thing is yeah. a little bit troubling. I think yes. that it points to the swinger theory. Yes. Which we'll talk about the swinger thing on the feedback too. Yeah. I, I, but I'm definitely still in that maybe that's not the sole reason that they invited him, but I think they're trying to knock at that double door between their rooms, you know, to see if uh, they can get that open. And it could just be Cameron, too. It could not be Daphne. Daphne could be along on the ride of thinking that this is completely a business thing. Like, you know, he's working on a new investment. He's trying to get Ethan on board. And then Cameron could be on the side going, all right, but Harper looks pretty nice. There's more to Daphne, though, than I think we really realize just yet. There's been some lines that she's dropped that make me think, oh, wait a minute. This is a smart woman. She may be playing... um, Suburban, and she, you know, she is a, a housewife in uh, in one sense. I mean, she says she stays home with the kids, and it's nice that they have that that choice. But I, I think she's also they're they're also setting her up to play against that stereotype. They're giving us a lot of that stereotype frontage, that veneer, but also underneath, I think there's a lot more going on with her. Yeah, I think that it's really great that Mike White is portraying these complicated people who aren't just a two-dimensional character. Yeah. And it's nice because then we're, we're seeing nuance and subtlety, and that makes it for a richer viewing experience. Right. And again, she could still be a complicated character and be unsuspecting of his infidelity because they have a great relationship at home. That doesn't make her less intelligent. That just means that she has emotions for this guy. Right. And I think that gets into the next scene here, which at dinner, they talk about having kids, which leads to an awkward moment where Harper and Ethan talk about their sex life. But then Daphne and Cameron share about their last pregnancy and how that endangered Daphne's life. And that was a very poignant scene. I felt the scene because I've witnessed a similar thing, not quite Uh as life-threatening, right? but not that far off. Uh huh. 
And so I totally get it. And it is a very emotional time and it is very scary. Uh-huh. Um, I liked that they portrayed Cameron as, you know, genuinely caring for Daphne and his child. Yep. And again, they're building these complex characters where they might be doing some terrible things, but they're also human beings who have love in their hearts. Right, right. And I think that's going to, all of this emotional tension is really going to start, is going to keep building. And so that when things do trigger and, and, and Mike White's traps, tr- plot traps start springing left, <laughs> right, and center, like we're going to have emotional uh, investment in these characters and what happens to them. Right. Now, I was with Harper, though, on Ethan. Why is he saying these things at the dinner table? Uh, <laughs> that was a pretty... Well, you know, they, they are very honest in their conversations with each other, so maybe he just slipped out of public mode and into sort of their private <laughs> discourse mode? I don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm, wow. I'm making that up. Well, it could be that he has a, an intimacy with Harper, obviously, that's his wife. But he also has an intimacy with his old college roommate because, you know, it's true. my college roommate and I used to talk like, you know, we used to talk about everything. I mean, I do right. think that there is a bond that you have with like your college roommate and similar kinds of friends where you do feel comfortable talking about things. Now, do I inform my college roommate about my sex life today? No, of course <laughs> I don't, because I'm not a weirdo, Ethan. <laughs> But I, I get why he would sort of be like in his head, like, oh, intimate person, intimate person, bam. Right, right. And just sort of slip into that casual conversation mode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was super awkward. I've never seen Aubrey Plaza's head turn that fast. <laughs> the looks, like, some, some of her looks on that during that conversation were great. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the sex is great. Yeah, yeah. Like my girlfriend in Canada. Yeah. You it's know, amazing. like amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. The way she drags out amazing. So good. Yes, she's excellent. All right, back in the room, Harper apologizes to Ethan for being a shrew, and they do not have makeup sex. Yeah, this was really sad. Uh huh. Yes, it was. Harper was. You could see she was really disappointed. She was like, mm-hmm. "All right, I'm ready. I wanna. I wanna prove that I'm." I think it was more like, "I want to prove that we're not as sad as we just looked at dinner." I hundred percent. It proved to themselves that they right. are not. Yeah. Anything goes, nah, I'm good. Yeah. That was rough. I was pretty shocked. Yeah. That was a hard rejection. Yeah. Meanwhile, Daphne and Cameron discuss Harper, and Daphne tells Cameron that she could cut his balls off anytime she wanted to. I believe her. Yeah. Well, this is one of the scenes where it really twigged for me that Daphne has a lot more going on. And I don't know yet to what extent. Her cunning and intelligence, you know, what areas it extends to, but she certainly delivered that line in in a super confident way that actually kind of scared me a little bit. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. No, there's something behind the surface. And I hope that we get to see it. I'm sure we will, because that's Mike White's way. Yeah. Uh, But I hope we get to see it before the end of the season. All right. Let's swing over to Tanya and Greg. Uh, Tanya wakes up to Greg sitting forlornly on the bed next to her. Tanya and Greg go to breakfast where they both notice Portia. Tanya embarrasses herself at the buffet and asks the hotel staff if they have any Oreo cake. Do you have any Oreo cake? Oh, good. That was good. 
you know, let, let us know if you think uh, uh, John is uh, getting better on his Tanya. If you have any pointers, I'll take them. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll take anything. I just want to be the best Jennifer Coolidge I can for the audience. So this is the first time we see uh, Greg transmitting that something is going on for him. And obviously we, we learn later that he's going to have to leave. But Tanya notices his sort of dour, demure uh, attitude. I think Tanya is starting to wake up a little bit, which is good. Well, she does by the end of this, for sure. Right. Yeah. No, but I I just mean by the beginning of this day, she's already kind of had enough of him. And she's really trying her best to bring it back. Right. And that's why she's not saying anything, especially because I think she feels guilty that Portia is 10 feet away. But... She's kind of had enough of his shit by now. Yeah, for sure. All right. Over breakfast, Tanya and Greg plan their perfect Italian dream date. The hotel staff rents a Vespa for uh, Tanya and Greg, who've dressed up and who head out for a ride. Who am I? <laughs> Peppa Pig. <laughs> no, I'm Monica Vitti. This was classic Valentina. <laughs> and the she, uh, Tanya takes a drag on the cigarette right when Valentina delivers the Peppa Pig line. It was like, Peppa Pig doesn't smoke? Like, what are you saying, Valentina? <laughs> that was too much. No, we all know that Peppa Pig is indoctrinating our children to smoke cigarettes. That's right. Uh, well, and there's there's like a lot of documented cases, too, of of kids who've watched a lot of Peppa, American kids who've watched a lot of Peppa, Peppa Pig speaking with British accents. Yeah. Very interesting. I think that the Brits are finally taking back over the colonies. Yeah, very good. Fortunately, we dodged that uh, whole thing. We never got into Peppa Pig, so uh, my sanity was saved. I have to say, for as much of a jerk that Greg is being, he does cut a nice figure in that suit. Good for him. He's coughed out all of the, um, <laughs> you know, all of the nasty parts. Yes. Some of the looks on his faces when he was trying to drive the Vespa and getting squeezed by Tanya were hilarious. Uh, That whole scene, I just couldn't stop laughing with with Tanya just coughing over her shoulder like, (laughs) just, it's fluttering around. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Uh, And her helmet, that was just, that was inspired. So Monica Vitti... Uh, is an act, an Italian actress, and I didn't know anything uh, about her. I wasn't familiar with her uh, prior to this reference, so I did a quick Google searching. Recent, she just died recently in February of this year at 90, 90 years old. She is largely heralded as being the queen of Italian cinema, and I counted her um, filmography, and she has over 50 films. Wow. Starting from the late 50s, going all the way up. Um, apparently, she did a lot of romance uh, and, and dramatic uh, films early on in her career and switched to comedies later on. And I don't wonder, and I, it'd be great if, if we, um, any astute listeners out there have, are familiar with Monica Vitti's work, does this Vespa scene mirror anything that Monica Vitti did, because apparently she got into uh, comedy uh, quite seriously, if you could be serious about comedy, uh, later on in her career. And so I would love to know 
if Tanya squirming around in the back of his Vespa was inspired in any way by Monica Vitti's you know, real career in the films that she did. Perhaps one of our Italian listeners, because now we know we have some. Yes, we'll we let have us know. at least one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Um, Tanya and Greg end their ride at the same restaurant as Albie and Portia. Greg breaks the bad news that he has to go home to deal with a work emergency. Tanya calls him out and calls him a piece of shit. <laughs> Good for her. You know what? Tanya can be awful to the people around her, but... Yeah, she's got her own issues. Greg, I'm rooting for her. Yeah. Um, and this escalated really quick, too. Like, uh, he, you know, his impulse was, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have her, let her have her perfect day, and then I'm going to drop the bad news on her about returning for this work trip. I, I don't know. That's debatable. You know, like, it, it kind of, you know, spoils. It's the fly in the ointment. It's sort of like, yeah. you know... He, he spoiled the perfect day by dropping this on her at the end. Yeah, I don't know why he had to do it at dinner. Couldn't he have at least waited until they got home? I just, I don't understand. Maybe it was her eating the spaghetti. Yeah, maybe. Or, you know, he could have said, you know, at the beginning of the day, today's going to be your perfect day. I'm going to, we're going to do absolutely everything together because unfortunately I have to, you know, I've got a work thing that's, this is what's going on, but I want to make sure we have fun or whatever. I don't know. There was a different way to handle it and he didn't handle it right. No, no. But I think that if this happened and she hadn't had two days straight of him being awful to her, it might not have hit so badly. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree. I totally agree. Because this was the icing on the cake. This was not the root of their problems. Right. All right, Tanya wakes up in the middle of the night, and she gets up, and she sees Greg out on the balcony talking on the phone. And this is where we have a little turn here. Now, I wrote down all of Greg's lines. Yeah, she's clueless as usual. I'll be home tomorrow. Give you a call when I get in. All right, yeah, I love you too. So what did you make of this scene? I don't think he's cheating on her. You think so? I don't think he's cheating on her. I don't. No, he's not. Okay, no. we're in agreement then. Oh, good. Yeah. That's, a, that's a change this episode. <laughs> what a refreshing joy for our listeners. Woohoo! No, I don't think that he's cheating on her. I think that's a family member or something. Uh-huh. And I think that this is something to do with his illness. I think right. something's going on with it. I think that that could be part of, not excusing, but part of the motivation for him being a jerk right now. I think he's uh-huh. in a bad mood because he has some bad news. Yeah. I, I agree. At at the end of the episode, I was totally like, oh, you know, like Greg has a second family or something like that. And then re-watching it to write my notes, uh, I listened to how he was saying the lines, and it could have totally been a conversation with an adult child, um, a family member, a sister or a brother, somebody like that. Um, it was not when he says, yeah, she's clueless as usual, it wasn't malicious. It was just his general condescending attitude toward her. It wasn't villainy in the sense of, yeah, ha ha ha, she's clueless. She doesn't know, you know, what I've got planned in store or whatever. So, right. yeah, I'm with you on this one. Can I just ask about people who have second families? Who has the time? <laughs> you got to be so energetic to be able to handle that. That just sounds like a job. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I just, if, if anyone out there who's listening happens to have a second family, can you write in and let me know how you have the time? 
it's crazy. I, I, I feel like I barely have enough time with just uh, the small family that we have. Right, exactly. Same here. So, on that note, I don't think that Greg's cheating on Tanya. I think that Tanya's going to think that he is if she yes. heard that. I think it was kind of unclear yeah. if she heard, right? Yeah, but he's certainly being furtive. Like, who's he talking to out on the balcony in the middle of the night? So, whether she heard or not, we have yet to see. But, yeah, she certainly has evidence in, um, to, to suspect him. Jacques. Jacques. All right, David, that's the end of the scene-by-scene breakdown, or I guess the character breakdown. But next up, after this break, we're going to check in with our Deadpool and see how our predictions are going, and then we're going to take some listener feedback. And we're back. So, David, we've got to check in with our bets. How are you feeling? I am still pretty good on Mia and Greg. I have some questions. Um, First off, I did review briefly the episode one scene where Daphne finds the body. And those legs are definitely pasty white and still read to me as male. Um, So, and I would guess, given just sort of interpreting what I see, that could be very Greg-like legs, or it could it be the piano player? Like, does it have to be a main cast member who dies? I don't know. So I'm a little bit nervous, because if Greg leaves to go back to the United States, does he come back? Does he never leave? I don't know. Like, I'm complicated now. In terms of... Mia, I definitely think that she's still a strong candidate just because that would be such a tragic blow for us, given the fact that we're really starting to fall in love with her as a character. I mean, she's a beautiful singer. She's got a bright future. She's alive and and fun and a good friend and like lots of great traits about her. So I'm it I'm still, you know, um going in with her as a as a possible victim. The last thing I've got to say is, given that there's multiple deaths likely coming at us, because remember, Rocco says that there are a few bodies, right? That maybe we get a confluence of events where it's not a single thing, like somebody bursts into a room and like shoots, you know, three people in a row, but maybe it's a drug overdose over here and a trip and a fall over there and a jealous lover over here. Maybe there's a confluence of events that leads to multiple deaths. Um, so I'm starting to wonder if that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, if it's one big thing, I don't think that would be satisfying. I think that the joy of season one, as much joy as there can be in an accidental death, was how random it felt. It was it really, really felt random. I mean, one second he's shooting in a suitcase, the next second he's stabbed <laughs> with a pineapple knife. God, now you just gave me a flashback to that scene. I, it's stuck in my head now. <laughs> yeah, well, you're welcome. Hope that you. hope that's right behind your eyelids as you fall asleep tonight. <laughs> so anyway, it felt very random, and it felt right for the show, and I think that you need a similar kind of chaos at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would be better if it's like you're, what you're saying, and we have multiple coinciding events that are completely unrelated or maybe related in a plot way, but not in a factual way. Yeah. And I think that would be fun too, because part of the fun of the season with Valentina and the hotel staff is there's a little bit of 
physical comedy sort of slapstick going on. And so if we had that sort of chaotic culmination, I think that would be more in fitting with this, the tone of this season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sticking with my bets for now. I'm sticking okay. with Ethan. I think I did Ethan, Greg, and Portia, right? Those were yeah. my three. Yeah. I'm sticking with them. Okay. No, no changes, no new thoughts or anything? No new thoughts. I think that Greg is more likely to die now after that phone call okay. than beforehand. Um, Portia, again, I'm thinking that this is the Zeus storyline that we're seeing play out. Okay. And all right. So Ethan, I think the incel thing is less likely. Okay. After this episode. But I think that he's running pretty early in the morning in the dark, isn't he? That's a good point. Oh, oh, interesting twist. Because he, they did show him running around some, you know, some um, uh, high vantage points and and checking out uh, some different parts of the city. So yeah, there could be something something there. And Harper would not think anything of him being missing for a couple hours. Yeah, I know. I think that lines up. That lines up pretty good. Yeah. So those are my thoughts. Okay, great. Ready for listener feedback? Yeah. First off, we have Dennis, friend of the pod, uh, moderator on our discords and Patreon subscriber. Thank you, Dennis, for all of that. He says, hey, guys, just a quick note. I think you're conflating polyamory with other non-monogamy like swinging. Polyamory is more focused on relationships. I don't think Cameron is trying to be Harper's new boyfriend. He's just looking for sex. Yeah, I was... I, I was thinking about your email, Dennis, and I think that you're right. I was I was throwing around polyamory last episode. It was definitely my fault more than yours, David. Well, thank you for the absolution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was unsure if Cameron was interested in her romantically, but I don't know. I don't think so after this episode. I don't think it's a romantic thing as much as it's a sexual thing, if, it, if there is something at all. So I think you're right, Dennis. I think this is more swinger-based than polyamory. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction, and um, the the idea of people who are in polyamorous relationships, I'm sure, probably don't like to be. <laughs> no, no. I, I hope I didn't make it sound like I think that they're the same thing, because I don't. Right. I, I guess my confusion was, what are Cameron's intentions? Is he interested in her romantically right. in a polyamorous relationship? Is, are Daphne and... Cameron, who have known this couple for a long time, interested in welcoming them into their lives more fully, or are they interested in something sexual? And I think yeah. that after this episode, the latter is more likely. Right. Agreed. All right. Next up, we have Marta from Italy. We actually have an Italian writing into us. This is great. She says, hello, my name is Marta and I'm a listener from Italy. I discovered your podcast when you covered the Rings of Power series, and I've enjoyed your take on Season 2, Episode 1 of The White Lotus, which I quite liked. I look forward to both seeing how the story progresses and to listening to you talking about it. I'm writing to give you an insight on two Italian songs that were part of this episode's soundtrack. It is noteworthy to me because they are two songs by the same artist and both have been cut in maybe in a meaningful way. The artist is Fabrizio D'Andre, a very famous, much-beloved Italian singer-songwriter. He was famous for his beautiful poem-like lyrics. He was interested in singing about marginalized people, the poor, prostitutes, drug users, are among the main protagonists of his song. The first song we hear is Bocca di Rosa, or Rosemouth, 
during the arrival and then the disembarkation of the passengers. This is the passage we hear, and it's English translation. So she's um, translated the lyrics for us and put them into a nice uh, uh, table for me to read. It's rather long, and she also goes into about the second song, so I'm going to keep reading here. The lyrics, they call her Rosemouth, she put love, she put love. They called her Rosemouth, she put love above everything else. As soon as she got off at the station in the small town of St. Hilario, everyone noticed with one look that she was nothing to do with a missionary. There are those who make love out of boredom, those that choose it as a profession. Rosemouth was neither one nor the other, she did it for passion. But passion often leads to satisfying one's own wants, without investigating whether a partner in lust has a free heart or else has a wife. And thus it was, the virgin in the first row, and Rosemouth not far behind, He takes them out for a walk through the village, sacred love and love profane. This is perhaps DeAndre's most famous song. It is about this woman, a prostitute, question mark. The singer himself always denied this to be the case, who arrives in this tiny village and immediately becomes the talk of the town. She is loved by men and hated by women, who eventually manage to banish her. But, plot twist, When she arrives at the next tiny village, she is received by the whole town, priest included, and taken for a walk through the village as a symbol of profane love next to the symbols of sacred love, the statue of the Virgin. So I guess this is quite straightforward. The song is about a woman who makes love for pleasure, and in the meantime, we see Lucia licking a lollipop while watching the passengers passing by. It is maybe also noteworthy to end on a contraposition between sacred love and love profane, although this rough cut was probably made on a higher note. All right, so she's going to talk about another song, but I want to first get your reactions to this first part. John, what do you think? Really interesting, and I think it's a rich portrait of sort of partners in lust, as one of the lyrics said. Mm-hmm. And especially when applied to Lucia, who is making money through lust, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what Mike White is trying to say about sex workers by putting this song here, and what he's trying to say about sex workers overall this season as we see Lucia's development. Right. I mean, Lucia seems to see sex work as a means to an end, but it seems like she's also very joyous in her work. Yeah, she's having a good time. I'm his girlfriend for the week, you know, like like gloating about it. Right. And she's she when she encounters Dominic on the two occasions, you know, she is very forward leaning into it, right? Not just sort of a, a passive, okay, you know, put the money on the nightstand and and do your thing. Like she is a full participant in the engagement that she's having with him. Right. She wants to chat for a while, she wants to share a drink together. Um, you're right. It's not just a one and done. Right. And, uh, no, I, I think it's a really interesting way to portray Lucia. I think that Lucia, again, reputation, I'm not the, I'm not the quick in and out. I am the girlfriend for a week. Right. Right. And it, and again, it's just giving us more context, better context for the whole conversation around sex and sexuality um, sex work, reputation, uh, community, how uh, the community uh, sees somebody who engages in this type of work. 
So it's really great uh, extra analysis that Marta has given us here. This is what hotels were made for, right? That's what she says. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that, but... Still, it's a great line. I, I, I think it was for people who were tired on the road, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, whatever, you, whatever floats your boat, Lucia. So Marta continues in her email, the other song by DeAndre that we hear in this episode couldn't be more different in tone. It's titled January Prayer, and there's no way I can pronounce this in Italian. And we hear it when Cameron is changing behind Harper. This is the passage we hear. May blossoms adorn his pathway, Lord. When to you his spirit and the world his skin, he'll have to hand back in to listen to his voice. You will see you will be pleased. Maybe they chose this song just for its eerie melody, but I think it's quite interesting to know that DeAndre here is talking about a man who committed suicide. More specifically, it was written on the occasion of the suicide of Luigi Tenko, I believe I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, a friend and fellow singer-songwriter. At the time, suicide being considered a sin by the church, a traditional Catholic funeral mass and burial were prohibited. So in this song, DeAndre is talking directly to God, asking him to listen to his friend's voice and to welcome him in heaven. I hope you find these notes interesting. I wasn't expecting to hear DeAndre's music in the show, much less two songs in the same episode. And I wonder if he'll pop up again in future episodes. I'll definitely be paying close attention to the soundtrack. Thank you for the podcast. Love, Marta. Marta, thank you so much for writing in. John, what do you think about this second song? I wonder what Cameron's doing. I mean... Is he is he deeply wounded inside? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Is Harper deeply wounded inside? I mean, mm-hmm. she has had a lot of rejection this past episode. I wonder if we're going to see her driven to some kind of end. Right. Regardless, all of this is just painting a very interesting picture of how these characters are going to come into dramatic conflict and what the results are going to be. I think it's going to get quite messy. Yeah. And thank you again, Marta, because we are American, and as Americans, we are America-centric. And uh, we would not recognize these songs, probably, if you didn't write in. So thank you so much. Uh, Please keep writing in if you hear any more songs that you feel are relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Or anything else that you happen to see. All right, John, I think that wraps it up for our uh, coverage of episode two. Uh, do we have anything that we need to let folks know on? I, I certainly have made a few show notes, um, a tribute to Monica Vitti, um, and uh, also the interview with the actress who plays Mia, which is on the Vanity Fair Still Watching podcast. I'll put links of, for those in the show notes below. Yeah, well, I would just announce some of our upcoming podcasts. Again, we're going to be doing this every week. It's coming out on Wednesdays. And then on Saturdays, we have Andor, and I'm really excited to talk about Andor again this week. We have the closing of an arc this week, so big action-packed episode ahead, probably a lot of plot implications. Really excited to get there. Right before Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about the first reading from the Silmarillion. Still time to hop in on that for the Ina Lindelay. That's the first few pages of the Silmarillion, and we're going to talk Tolkien, just like the good old days. And we've got some plans for December and the new year, but we'll keep you posted on that coming up. Again, if you'd like these podcasts ad-free and early, you can always sign up on our Patreon. Special shout-out to Samarchin for being in our Loremaster tier. You get a shout-out on the podcast. And um, 
Hope you will join us next week wherever you listen, and thanks for listening. The White Lotus Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Moon. You can get ad-free and early versions of these episodes at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Connect with us on Twitter at the Lorehounds or by email at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>